welcome to the Tech Done Right podcast, TableXI's podcast about building better software, careers, companies, and communities. I'm Noel Rappin. If you like the podcast and would like to encourage us to continue, please follow us on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right and leave a review on iTunes. iTunes reviews really do help new listeners find our show, so we appreciate your time. We also have a new newsletter where you can find interesting stories, podcast news, and some mini essays and rants from me. You can subscribe at techdoneright.io slash newsletter. Thank you in advance. One of the perks of doing this podcast has been the chance to have extended conversations with smart people who I either never get a chance to talk to or only get to interact for a few minutes at a conference or on Twitter. Sarah May is the chief consultant at DevMind, and she's also a member of Ruby Central. Her Twitter feed, at Sarah May, is loaded with interesting tweet storms on all kinds of code-related topics, ranging from code quality to testing to culture to mentoring. You should definitely follow her there. I'm really excited that I got a chance to talk to Sarah, and I'm excited to share with you the conversation that we had, and it starts with a discussion about livable code. Sarah, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm Sarah May. I'm the chief consultant at DevMind, and uh, I have been doing a bunch of thinking recently about teams and software design and code quality and how all that stuff intersects. And I've been talking about a concept called livable code, and uh, I'd love to talk about that today. So why don't you tell us what you mean by livable code? I see code bases in two states, neither of which is super useful to the team that owns it. And the first state is probably the most common, and it's the one where it's so messy that you can't really understand what's going on, that there are large swaths of the code base that nobody touches. There are small little goat trails of understanding through large files or complicated methods the, the one time where that one person who knew what was going on cleaned up the one file that one time. Right. And there was like a bug that needed to be fixed. So they had to trace through some thing. And so there's like this one little piece of it that you understand. But then there's this whole unknown like ORT cloud of stuff out there. And so there's a lot of teams that have those uh, or are sort of are, are approaching that situation. And then the other type of code base I see that is not workable is the type where everything is super abstract where it's very difficult to figure out what happens when a user does something with the software. And it's very difficult to figure out, like, okay, trace through here, it goes through there, it goes through there, it comes eight classes later. Like, there might be something that actually does the thing you're trying to figure out if you're lucky, right? Low cohesion. Textbook low cohesion. Object-oriented design. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, cohesion is a, a software design term that uh, is a sort of an abstract measurement of how clumpy the code is. Yeah, that's an interesting way of thinking about it, yeah. A code base that has high cohesion tends to have a, a lot of stuff sort of in the same place, and a code base with low cohesion has stuff that's spread out. Right. I mean, uh, a lot of times, you know, most software is super basic in that, like, there's some kind of input. There's a list of things that has to happen, and then there's some kind of output. No matter whether you're building you know, a piece of middleware or a backend service or a web application or a mobile application like, or you know, firmware for a robot, like, this is sort of the basic structure, right? And it can be easier and harder or harder to find that list of things that happens, right? Uh, and that's how I think about it is like, how easy is it to find the list? So people make all of these abstractions, you know, sort of ostensibly in the name of future maintainability, or maybe they just do it because certainly I went through a phase where I just did hyper abstract code because I liked hyper abstract code and had not yet gotten burned by it. Absolutely. That's sort of the way we teach design as well. And I did a computer science degree a long time ago. And, and the way that they taught software design was, well, you sort of figure out all of your boxes and lines up front and you figure out what the names of your methods are going to be and what they're going to 
take in and what they're going to return. And then you sort of fill it in. And, and they taught us that the way to do that was to figure out like, okay, what might you want to change? And let's make that easy. Right. Which is, a, you know, it's a good goal. Which is a good goal. Absolutely. My actual undergrad CS degree kind of predates object-oriented programming. But as a grad student, I taught object-oriented programming in small talk. And, and certainly that was, I was responsible for, for inflicting that kind of philosophy on people. And, and, you know, I still, I, I think have some abstraction in my code base. So where does that go wrong? Well, where it goes wrong is if you've got folks on your team who can't keep so much stuff in their head, right? Especially if you are, where I see it go wrong often is when you have a team that is more on the junior side of things than on the senior side. Or if you have a team that is all senior right now and you want to start bringing in junior developers. Because a lot of times folks who are newer to development, one of the characteristics is that sometimes they can keep fewer abstractions in their head. And uh, as people gain more experience, that's one of the things that people seem to get better at is sort of keeping a set of abstractions, maybe because they've seen so many and so they can pattern match against them and can sort of take shortcuts in their brain. But for whatever reason, folks who are lower on the experience spectrum sometimes have difficulty with these very abstract code bases. Well, that's really that's sort of one definition of expertise is that you get better at pattern recognition and dealing with larger abstractions. And I think that like across domains. Yeah, Absolutely. So what makes a code base livable then? I think about livable code as being somewhere between the super abstract, low cohesion code base and the extremely messy, don't understand it, difficult to figure out messy code base, right? I think of that as a, as two different extremes. One of them I think of as a, a hoarded house, meaning uh, like a house like you would see on the TV show Hoarders. I don't know if you ever saw that. Yeah, I can picture. Yeah. Yeah. And the other side is sort of like a house that's been staged. You're trying to sell it, right? So you take out all the clutter. Very minimalist. You can't Very live there. Very minimalist. You can't live there. There's no trash cans. There's no like pot rack in the kitchen, et cetera. So this is like the Goldilocks of software design. Yeah. And it, the just right is different for each team. And I think that's the important thing to think about here is that there's no just right that is just right for everybody. You know, I definitely, I can think of one case, which I know anecdotally, where a company had a large, messy code base and they called in a consulting company, which is neither my consulting company nor your consulting company. <laughs> uh, and that consulting company built them a super abstract code base. Um, unfortunately, when they left, nobody left behind knew how to maintain it. And it, it, again, anecdotally, sort of devolved back into a hoarder's mess. Yep. And, and they kind of stopped using it. I, I think of that story a lot, actually, in terms of what the right thing to do is or what correct software design actually is in context. Exactly, right? There's no such thing as a absolutely correct software design because it, the correctness of a software design is a function not only of the code itself, but of the team that's working on it. And that's why a lot of the static analysis tools I feel like are not, they give you one piece of data, but they are absolutely not enough to evaluate whether the code you have is the code that you need. And I think that a lot of times the static analysis tools are set up to reward a cleaner code base, a staged house, like no trash cans out. I find that kind of static, like the static analysis of long methods, long lines, I find that stuff to be generally of, of relatively minimal value. There are some things that, that some of those like code climate kind of things do that I do find kind of interesting, but the simple like this file is getting too complicated, this 
method is getting too complicated. Like I, I don't find that more helpful than my own intuition about how my team is reacting to the code base. That's true. And I think that code climate and things like that, like there's, there's a couple of really interesting things that they can do for you. Like one is, for example, code climate has this thing that's a plot of churn against complexity. Yeah. So if you have a file that is both high complexity from as far as its static analysis can figure out, meaning it's, it's hoarded, and it changes a lot, meaning the churn is high, then that is a good way to identify, oh, maybe if we're thinking about trying to make this better, that might be a good target to look at. Because uh, if you manage to make that easier to work with, because it changes so often, it'll be a higher reward. Right. And conversely, even if you have stuff that's high complexity, if nobody ever touches it, then it's not necessarily a good use of your time to polish that room. You, know, you, don't, you don't necessarily need to clean the attic. Exactly. And if you've got like the one cabinet that has all the Tupperware in it, but you never use the Tupperware, like it doesn't really matter if when you open the cabinet, it all falls out. Like because you're not going to open the cabinet, right? Or you've got a, a closet in the spare room that has all of the random stuff you don't know what to do with. Well, I mean, as long as you don't need to do anything with that stuff, you can just leave it there. So there are a couple of questions that come to mind. One of which is, how do you start to calibrate what the right level is for your team? Because I think that I know that I feel a tension between like my, for lack of a better word, CS hat wanting to make everything clean uh, and my consultant, uh, I'm going to have to actually do work in this hat. How do you calibrate that for your team? There's a couple different ways to do it. So one thing that I found useful is to run a retrospective meeting specifically about the code. Now, the way that I usually do retrospective meetings is they're usually about the process. If you look at them from sort of a traditional Agile-like point of view, a retrospective is, is like your chance to reflect on the process itself. So it's sort of a meta thing. Right. But I have found that if you give the developers a chance to list all the stuff that they don't like about the code and all the stuff that they do like about the code, that can give you a lot of insights into what would be good to have more of. You know, So it's important to make sure that they can have stuff in the good column as well. Um, so sometimes it helps to like have them think about this ahead of time. And also, like what stuff is in the bad column? What are they finding difficult? You know, if you've got something that's really abstract and people are finding it difficult to trace through, then that's a piece of information. If you have something that's very abstract, but it doesn't show up on the list in either place, like that's another piece of information. And so and it can be good to do these regularly just because if you have them regularly, people think of things and write them down and can bring them to the meeting. And so uh, because you touch different pieces of the code base over time. And, and I think that over time that can give you a good sense of like, okay, this part seems to be a bit problematic. This part no one has ever brought up. And this part everyone always puts in the like column. So we should do more like that. And then you know, one of the things that I, we said, I just like just had Michael Feathers on this, like the one it's actually released today as we taped this. And we were talking about the thing that I always bring up, which is the, the sort of the Boy Scout campsite rule, which is to leave the code a little bit better than you find it every time you make a change. And that has the advantage of you're only changing the things that you're touching anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that the difficulty with that rule, and I, I do talk about that a lot, um, although I call it the Girl Scout rule because that's where I come from. <laughs> Uh, we had that rule too, by the way, in Girl Scouts. I was neither one. Uh, uh, okay. So I was, I, I, because, um, the outdoor, I was not really an outdoors. Well, that's not true, but I was not, certainly, I was certainly not a camping kind of scout kind of kid. Yeah. I, I anyway, yeah. So anyway, but I, I think that, um, like the difficulty actually though, is that people disagree about what better means. 
Sure. And especially if you have folks that are more on the less experienced end of things, they may not know what that means. Like, what does better mean, right? Mm -hmm. And I would love to assume that everyone is pair programming with all of their junior developers all of the time, but I know that that's not realistic. So it's often helpful then to have a set of guiding principles for the code base is how I think about it, which gives people at all experience levels very concrete advice about what better means in the context of this team. So what are some of the kinds of things that you would consider principles of a code base? I've struggled with sort of the title for this type of thing. You know, sometimes I think about them as goals. Sometimes I think about them as principles. But for example, uh, I had a client who one of their guiding principles was we want to make this code base more accessible. We want to reduce our onboarding time. We want to make it more understandable to people who aren't, uh, in this case, Ruby developers, because they were having a hard time hiring Ruby developers. And so they would bring in folks from other technologies and they had a really hard time picking it up. Um, and some of that had to do with like their uh, use of metaprogramming and other stuff that a lot of other languages don't have. And so what that meant, though, was that it gave them a very concrete way to decide how to structure a small piece of code. And so, you know, for example, if you're looking at something um, where you need to add a conditional, there's a lot of different ways you could do it in Ruby. You could either do an if statement, you could do a ternary operator, you could do a string interpolated method call, you could do a lookup table, like there's a lot of different ways that you could do a conditional. And so this is where the rubber meets the road, right? Like what does better mean in this situation? There are people that would argue that a ternary is better because it's shorter and less code is always better. There are people that would argue that an if statement is better because it's just more straightforward. There are people that would argue that once you have more than three things, you would want to do it as a hash lookup, interpolated method call or something. And so, you know, there are all these opinions, almost like, you know, personal preference is how we tend to argue about these things. Or idioms, we say idiomatic a lot, uh, which really just means that we like it that way. But, you know, if you look at it in the context of, okay, we want to make this code base more accessible to developers from other languages, probably the if statement, right? If statements are pretty universal. They're pretty universal. Uh... People don't have to figure out what an interpolated method call is. They don't know, have to figure out, you know, it's, it's a, able to be searched. It's able to be understood by people from a wide range of disciplines. I used to co-teach a Ruby course uh, with another person, and we would continually go to the point where we were comparing a ternary operator to uh, an inline if statement returning a value. Mm-hmm. And the students would inevitably ask which one we would like. And like simultaneously, I would say the if statement and the other person would say the ternary. Because uh, he liked the conciseness and I liked the readability. Mm-hmm. And I think that those are both valid. Sure. Both valid reasons, and those are both useful in different situations. Right. And so, say for example, instead of uh, you wanted to make your code base accessible to people from other languages, say for example, instead you wanted to make it faster for a senior Ruby developer to onboard. In that case, you might go the other direction. Right. And and one thing about that is that you can mix team and more objective goals because you could easily mix in just pure performance as a goal along with onboarding or along with testability or extendability or whatever whatever else you want. Yeah, I think so. And I, I, I think that a lot of the times when people argue about the different structures like that, they do have reasons for it, but sometimes it's very difficult to articulate. And so it falls down to like words like testability or extensibility or conciseness. And those are all good things. But basically, you need to be able to rank those in order of importance for your team. 
and to be very specific. And so, you know, that's, that's pretty hard to do though, right? Because there are going to be different situations in which the, you know, blah, blah is better than that, more important than this over here, but not important over there. And I feel like the guiding principles, which are sort of one level away from the code versus that, because they're more concrete, they're often easier to apply or they're applied more consistently. And when you do do a code review, you can talk about it in terms of that rather than in terms of personal preference or idioms or anything else. You can just be like, oh, well, this is our goal. And I feel like this structure advances that goal. And then the other person can be like, well, I feel like my structure advances the goal better because X. But then you can have that conversation in the context of a goal instead of in the context of their personal preference. Right. Uh, I remember the word maintainability being a big bugbear for DHH a couple of years yeah, ago. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that's the same kind of thing. It's a, it's an abstract goal that has no is often used without a, a concrete context around it, so it can mean whatever you kind of want it to mean. Like this. Right. And often when you start dealing with abstract goals like that, it's often useful to have the next part of the conversation be how. Like how does this make our code base more maintainable or accessible or onboardable? Right. Yeah, exactly. And I think that it's hard to, you know, especially in those conversations, one thing that I've noticed uh, at clients that have teams of mixed experience levels is that in these code review conversations or when they're pairing, sometimes developers that have more experience will fall back on either like, well, in my experience, this is better. Or, uh, well, I've seen, you know, in sort of the pathological case, right, it gets as far as like, well, I've been in software for 20 years and I've never seen anything that would want you to do this or the other way. And it leaves the less experienced developers at a huge disadvantage in these conversations because they can't really argue against that, right? Right. You can't, you can't say, well, my six months of experience leads me. I guess the only case where you can do that is if you actually have a counterexample, but then you have to right. get the person to listen to it, which can be hard. Right. And I think that that said, right, the folks that have less experience have extremely valuable information. And the information that they have is, does someone with six months experience understand this? That is extremely right. valuable information. This is uh, asking questions as junior developer superpower, which is something that uh, I think uh, Catherine Wu said in a talk. Yeah, definitely. And that information is really, really valuable because you need to write code that your entire team can work with. Right. So this tension between the experienced developers on a team and the junior developers on a team is something that you have been tweeting a lot about. It's something that you talk a lot about. So when it comes to this kind of guiding principle or structuring your code, like how should senior developers work with more junior developers to put that together? How should they use those in their interactions? I'll start with the second half of that first, using them in the interactions. I think that if you can, it gives senior developers a way to articulate the reason why they want to do something. So, you know, rather than just being like maintainable or best practice or, (laughs) you know, I read it in a blog post or whatever, they can be very concrete about it, right? It gives them an opportunity to look at that and be like, okay, so how does this advance that goal? Let's talk about that. And then it's an opportunity for them to explain things in a more concrete way rather than, you know, a lot of these conversations tend to be, well, maintainable is better. It needs to be changeable. And these are sort of received wisdoms in the software community, but there's a huge value in taking that down a level to be more concrete. And so talking about it in those terms also allows the less experienced developer to contribute on those terms. It's easier to say, well, but wouldn't it also advance the goal if we did it this way than it is to say, well, what if we try this thing that goes against your 20 years of experience? Wouldn't that also be fine, 
right? <laughs> and so it's easier to ha- get them into a place where they feel safe surfacing that information when you're talking about it in terms of code-based goals than it is when you're just sort of talking in a more general way. Yeah, so we're talking here not just about a goal. Like livable code, livable here, as you're sort of describing it, seems to me to be not just a function of the code base, but a function of the entire team. Absolutely. You know, that you're structuring, you're, you're guiding your code to be developed in a way that you get the maximum amount of input from both the more experienced and the less experienced members of your team. Right. And less experienced members can't contribute to, or it's difficult, more difficult for them to contribute to sort of higher level architecture discussions. But they can give you a lot of interesting feedback on the, you know, because of this issue with um, abstractions and being able to hold abstractions in their head. However, they can give you a lot of information about the very concrete things you're doing, and that can help inform how you do some of those larger abstractions. I can imagine somebody listening to this so far and having their takeaway be, uh, well, Sarah's telling us to write worse code to string the juniors along. <laughs> yeah, I get that a lot. <laughs> so I don't think that that's true, but I'd like to hear you explain why. Well, I, I come back to this house analogy a lot. And uh, so when everything is, is put away all the time, it's very difficult to live in that house. Because if you need to go into the kitchen and make some food, then you immediately need to like clean all that up and put it away. And you may not be able to find things, right? You may be like, oh, shoot, where did I put the wok? Well, it's not over here. Maybe I put it over there. And if you do that every day, you're like wasting a bunch of time looking for the wok all the time, right? And it's hard to imagine this, I think, in a code point of view. But um, if you think about it as a house full of people, the clutter that you need for a particular group of people in a house will be different depending on who those people are, right? So what you need out when you have an infant you know, baby bottles, a pack and play, you know, uh, what board books, whatever it is, guardrails. Guard yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I think specifically, specifically for the analogy, right? Guardrails. Right. Uh, is different than what you need out in, uh, and around the house when you have older kids. It's different from what you need out and around the house if you're a bunch of college age roommates, right? In that case, maybe you've got like a bunch of video game stuff out and, you know, you've got this table that you always use for parties and it's, you know, yeah, whatever it is, right? Like there's there's a different set of clutter that works for each group of people that's in a house. Yeah, so I guess I guess what I would take away from that is that we have a sort of knee-jerk reaction to the idea that a sort of minimalist code base or a very spread out small factor code base is good sort of in and of itself. And I think that, that what we're saying is that impulse is not necessarily as correct as you think it is. <laughs> Right. And that can be good, right? There are certain teams of people for whom that will be great, right? If you've got an all senior team and you're working on this thing, like that can be great because once they load it into their head, like they're going to be very fast to add things. But the minute you want to add someone with less experience, then it's not so good. So what do you think the, then the role is of kind of career development here? Like is, is a goal, like, I could also imagine somebody saying that the goal then should be like, well, we keep our cool minimalist design, we just train the new people to pick up after themselves. Like, is that also a goal? How do you, how do those two interact? Well, you can think about it like if you're one of these people that has a super minimalist house, then there is going to be a much smaller set of roommates that you are going to be happy living with than there is if you are not one of these minimalist people. Then there's a wider, like there's a broader spectrum of people who, like with whom you would be happily cohabiting. And it's the same with, you know, with a code base. So you, every time someone comes into the team or, or leaves the team, 
it's like getting a new roommate in the house, right? And they've got their own ways of doing things. And you can either take this hard line of like, this is the way we do it, and they can conform. Or you can take the line of, okay, well, now we all live in this house together. Like, let's sort of reassess what we do, like what our rules are, and, and you know, where, where we leave stuff out, and when do we do dishes. And, and like, all of that stuff is, and should be sort of open to reevaluation every time that group of people changes. And it's the same thing in a code base, right? You can either have a code base that is, you know, can be worked on by a very narrow group of people. But I guess, I guess my question then is, so there's two questions, but one of them is, to what extent then do you try, yes, you're, you're right. There's only a small group of people that can work on this code base, but to then what extent do you say like, well, we'll, we'll find a person and we'll train them. That's always an option, but a lot of times people don't can't wait that long. And I, I do see this happen, especially in very large organizations where because they have so many people working on the code base, it's it's important for it to be consistent. It's important for you not to leave a mess out because some other team on the other side of the world might accidentally step in it. You know, when you've got a, a team that's big enough that they can't all talk to each other, then these types of abstractions become more important. But I think that, you know, when you have a team that's small enough that you're all in contact with each other, or, you know, if you have a team, you know, that is uh, in the same location, or, you know, if you're not, if you're not Salesforce.com, if you're not IBM, if you're not HP, like these, if you have smaller teams, or even if you are, then you're sort of within one of these, right? You can have a code base that you can work faster on and get more people into and make better progress. At some of the, the consulting I've done has been at large companies. And a big part of the problem for them is that they have these practices that they have adopted for code bases that are worked on by thousands of people. And then they take those practices and they're surprised when it slows down a group of five people. So a lot of figuring out how to get a large organization to quote unquote innovate again is showing them that, oh, you don't have to do all of that stuff for a code base that these five people are going to work on. Right, because a lot of that stuff is communication and process, and, and you need to communicate and process in a different way when you have a thousand people than when you can, everybody can sit around a table in front of a whiteboard. Exactly. And when you have the case where people are sitting around a whiteboard, like a lot of those people probably are coming from a situation where they're used to this set of larger processes. And so they, we don't necessarily teach very well the skills for figuring out when a process fits your team size and when it doesn't. I don't blame them for necessarily trying to apply what they know into a smaller group. But I think that like a lot of the very abstract stuff comes from a place where, you know, it was a government system with several thousand people working on it in different places all around the world, right? So what can I do on my particular team? Like I, now I have my five to seven person team and it's got a mix of seniors and juniors and, and, and maybe it's a slightly well-established code base. What, how can I use that to guide the choices that I make as I'm architecting my code? There's a couple of things that can be useful here. One is to think about the code base as explicitly as a place that we're all living in. And that we need to be aware that there's going to be people coming in, looking at this piece of code, even if I own it right now, but there's probably going to be people coming in and looking at it that are less experienced. I want, I want to try and pull this into a, a, like an actual code example and not, sure. and not another architecture <laughs> uh, analogy. Gotcha. Which is fine. But so I, I'm now, I'm building a new feature for this and mm -hmm. we're trying to build in discount codes for this point of purchase thing. So. Mm -hmm. 
that has a tremendous amount of potential complexity and certainly a, normally a tremendous amount of like future proofing. Like this is something that might change a lot. Mm-hmm. So I now have the option of I can make like a very abstract workflow that talks to a bunch of different abstract classes, but maybe I probably shouldn't do that on my own. Maybe I should start by talking to the other members of my team. Like how would this process play out in practice? Something like that is an incredible opportunity for your team because they can see, they have an opportunity now to see how it moves through these levels of abstraction. And so what you could do is start out by doing something very concrete and, uh, you know, that solves the problem at hand. And then something else comes in and you're like, oh, hey, look, this is looking a little awkward now. This, this method is really long. This thing is now hard to change. Like, I'm going to take this up one more level of abstraction and, oh, look, it cleaned up this part of the code, right? And then you sort of, so you can take them along on that journey as it goes from very concrete to a more abstracted design. And I think the process there is important, though. You can't just be like, here's my abstract design, we're done, right? It's more like, let's go through the steps, right? Let's see how this actually happens. This sounds like uh, very agile. It sounds like Yagni, you ain't going to need it kind of design. You start with a concrete thing that solves the immediate problem, and you explicitly don't try to outguess the future. And I think that it's okay if you want to guess, but just don't code it up yet, right? And a lot of times, you know, as, a, as you get more experience, you will be able to see where it's going, probably, or you may not, right? Like there's a lot of situations in which things end up differently. You start out with something small and evolve it versus if you conceive of a whole thing and build it, right? Both of those approaches will work, usually. Uh, will end up with code that actually does the thing you want, but they're not going to end up at the same place, even if it's the same person doing it. The thing that the XP people always used to say was that you're just as likely to be wrong when you guess about the future as right. So the goal is to make it flexible to make changes in the future rather than make it super abstract to start. The difficulty with statements like that, though, is that some people would equate flexible to change with very abstract, right? As that was coming out of my mouth, I was realizing that was not maybe the best way to phrase it. What that means to me is that flexible to change is not an absolute concept, right? In the same way that good design is not an absolute concept. It's a concept relative to the people on your team. Like, So flexible to change probably includes, could somebody else change it, right? Could the least experienced person on the team figure it out and change it. That's part of changeability. Flexible to change to me also means, do we have tests to determine that we haven't broken anything? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Like, and that's part of like, if they've got a process where you would make a change and then run the suite of tests, like they need to have confidence because they haven't loaded the whole system into their head yet. They need to have confidence that those tests will tell them if something else has gone wrong. Do you see testing as having a particular role in this? Is that a principle? Like, is testing something that you would bring up as a guiding principle of the code base? We want this code base to always be testable or, or, or we want to test in a particular way. Like, Does testing help? I, I don't think of it as a, as a goal in and of itself, but I think that it is part of what changes as your principles change. So for example, uh, if you wanted to make your code base more accessible to new developers, that would suggest in some ways right, that you might want to do more top-level integration tests, which would then explain to them how it's working at a high level, as opposed to a code base where you don't do very many of those uh, and you just do like lower-down unit tests where you would still have to sort of trace through the code to figure out what's going on. Right? So your testing strategy is also informed by these goals. Right. So the, the integration test strategy is the sort of Rails core DHH approach to 
testing in the Rails community as opposed to the more unit test structure. I think that that's an interesting like compare and contrast to what you're the way that you're talking about uh, livability and principles because certainly Rails core operates along a particular set of principles in creating their code base. Yeah, they absolutely do, and you can see. And and the interesting thing I thought at RailsConf this year was that you could see it shifting, like real time. They've hired Basecamp in particular, uh, which is the company that does Rails, has hired uh, a bunch of newer developers, and you can see, you can see it shifting in the way that they talk about their code. And I would look for some really interesting changes to come out in the next couple of years. It changes to Rails because you think that they're that's interesting. In what direction? I guess. Well, that I'm not sure of, but I think that it's it's a it's a big change. They've always had a team. Well, maybe not always, but they've they've uh, for a long time had a team that was mostly on the mid to senior end of things, and that's a definite point of view. And you can see that in Rails itself, and you can see it in some of the additions that have happened over the course of the last five or six years too. Like you can see, for example, that over time they've gotten more sophisticated about JavaScript and front end development, right? You can see that in the. That's chamber. a fascinating novel in its own right. Yes. Oh yes, it is. <laughs> and so I think that, like you know, it, it's hard to see. It's easy to see in retrospect. It's hard to predict. Yeah. Given current changes, but I would. It seems like a, a significant enough change that we will see something come out of it. It's hard to say what. I do think they've gotten a lot more explicit about these are what our principles are, and we're going to try and do things like we have principles. Right. And, and maybe like this is not the only way to make a code base, but these are this is the way we believe. This in. is the and way we do. Yeah. yeah, I think that that's the change. Whereas a few years ago, a lot of the rhetoric was this is the only way that works, and I think now it's a little bit more. This is the way that works for us, and we're gonna we're gonna try and keep doing it that way. Right, and doing something like a, a framework is is this very delicate balancing act, right, between works for us right now and will appeal to a large number of people. And I think that it is true that there are certain patterns of code that a lot of applications can fit into and that people can understand even at a very uh, beginner level. Yeah, I think that Rails is a really interesting example here in terms of, of, I think that, although I don't think you would use that word, I think that DHH has really tried towards livable. Like he's certainly never been interested in object purity for object purity's sake. Yeah, that's for sure. Or testing for testing sake. Or testing for testing sake. True. Uh, yes, I have my own scars about that one. Yes, <laughs> but he's always been concerned with the programmer experience as I guess originally as he saw it, and now I think more as he sees other people experience it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that that is a really interesting evolution from Ruby itself, right? Where one of the original principles for the language was programmer happiness. And DHH really strongly attached to that and was one of the reasons, uh, at least from what I remember, as to why he chose Rails, or Ruby rather, to build this framework in. And so he's taken that principle, and that's a hard one to keep a hold of, I'll be honest, because like programmer happiness is, is okay, what type of programmer? Um, how, how much experience do they have? What kind of things do they like to do? Right. <laughs> right. And what kind? And there's all kinds of things in Ruby that make you happy the first time you do them, and then make you a lot less happy the sec the like tenth time you have to clean up somebody else's mess because they did them. Right. That is very true. And I think that you know making things 
easy is definitely like there's a spectrum there, right? And, and this is a large part of why you, you know, you don't see huge code bases with thousands of people working on them that are dynamically typed, for example, right? Types are one of those things that work as a formal communication mechanism for very large teams at the expense of individual programmer happiness. Right. right? They're, a ki- they're a kind of process in that sense. They're they are. Yeah. They absolutely are. And we don't talk about them that way, but that is basically how they are perceived, right? Because, you know, people say, well, you need to have types. And what they really mean is when you're in a team like I am in, types serve a useful purpose in our technical communication. It's going to be really interesting to me to see the Rails community can collide with Webpack and the JavaScript community Mm -hmm. uh, now that Webpack, because I think that the Node and the JavaScript community as expressed through build tools like Webpack, which like I don't have a complete firsthand experience with, but they have certainly have a much different definition of those livability trade-offs than the Ruby community and the Rails community. And it's going to be very interesting to see for me to see what happens with Webpack being essentially a first-class member of the Rails framework. Uh, that's an interesting distinction to make. And I, the JavaScript community has a lot of very experienced developers. And so my take on that is that people develop these philosophies because they are guided by the contours of the language itself. And so there is something about the language itself that has guided these two communities in two different directions. And so that's interesting, right? Right. That gets complicated. Right. People choose the language because it matches what they like, and then the language ex- affects how they express what they like, and it sort of there's a chaotic attractor there, I think. Yeah, that's true. But I, yeah, but I think that like what struck me at RailsConf particularly was Rails built up this entire system testing framework, one of the goals of which was to avoid having the developer type in like six lines of capybara mm-hmm. configuration, which is great. I don't like typing those six lines any you know any more than anybody else does. But then Webpack is like a gajillion lines. <laughs> Right. Of configuration. And it's hard for me to see that the community is not going to try to sand some of the edges off of that. The attitude towards JavaScript has evolved over time, right? And I think that when JavaScript first started getting really popular, there were a lot of people who were like, oh, you know, these people are doing it like that because they're inexperienced or because they're not real developers or because they don't understand. Um, and I think that we've uh, arrived at perhaps a more sophisticated understanding of this phenomenon, which is that the things that we choose are, are largely guided by things that we're not necessarily fully aware of, things like capabilities and restrictions in the language and capabilities and restrictions in, you know, how does the, there's even aspects of like, how does the community want to communicate with each other, right? Like that can affect, like literally affect how code is written. Yeah, I think really early on, the fact that the developer tools in JavaScript were further behind the other languages had kind of a circular, you know, the tools weren't great, so it was hard to build large programs, so JavaScript wasn't perceived as a, a program, you, as, a, as a language you could build, you know, the, the perception of JavaScript programmers was colored by the tools and by the, in kind of a weird circular way. Right. And then the tools got a lot better very, very fast. Because it turns out that if you put a bunch of programmers who are experienced at JavaScript and ask them to think about tools, things happen. <laughs> is there something else you want to talk about before we finish up? The main thing that I want to get across, I guess, is that the right design for your code base and your team is different from everyone else's code base and everyone else's team. And it is a thing that needs to adjust every time someone joins the team, every time someone leaves, probably. And, you know, there's the static analysis tools and so on can tell you, give you a certain amount of data about what your code is like, 
but it's really less about uh, what it's like and more about your experience of it. So read Pooter, but don't assume that you have to implement it perfectly in your code base, that it's exactly the right thing for your code Right. Base. And, and yeah, Sandy says that a lot, but I think that like people miss that. <laughs> right. You know, Sandy will say like, no method should be more than five lines, but people miss that that was in a particular context to try and solve a particular problem for a particular team. Right. And that there's a lot of situations under which that would be a good idea but it's not every situation. <laughs> and, you know, she's the first to acknowledge that, but I think that some of that nuance gets lost. Some of that nuance gets lost, the internet story. <laughs> right, I know. A story of the internet. <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much for being here, Sarah. Uh, I'm really glad to get a chance to talk to you at more length than I normally get a chance to talk to you. Yeah, this was nice. Thanks for having me. Uh, where can people reach you if people want to reach you? To be honest, Twitter is probably the easiest way to reach me. <laughs> I have difficulty with email, but uh, Twitter DMs are always a good thing. So that's at Sarah May, S-A-R-A-H-M-E-I? That's right. Yep. Yep. So Sarah is telling you to DM her on Twitter. <laughs> Maybe not all at once. <laughs> okay. Thank you. And Tech Done Right is a production of TableXI and is hosted by me, Noel Rappin. You can find TableXI on Twitter at TableXI and me at Noel Rapp. The podcast is edited by Mandy Moore. You can reach her on Twitter at the Ruby Rep. Tech Done Right can be found at techdoneright.io or downloaded via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can send us feedback or ideas on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right or subscribe to our newsletter at techdoneright.io slash newsletter. TableXI is a UX design and software development company in Chicago with a 15-year history of building websites, mobile applications, and custom digital experiences for everyone from startups to storied brands. Find us at TableXI where you can learn more about working with us or working for us. If you're interested in working for us, we just opened up a couple of job listings that you can find at TableXI.com. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode of Tech Done Right. Thanks. Thanks.